I'm Jorge Salazar with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Black holes make for a great space mystery. They're so massive that nothing, not even light, can escape a black hole once it gets close enough. A great mystery for scientists is the evidence of powerful jets of electrons and protons that shoot out of the top and bottom of some black holes. Yet no one knows how these jets form. Computer code called Cosmos now fuels supercomputer simulations of black hole jets and is starting to reveal the mysteries of black holes and other space oddities. Cosmos code developer Chris Fergell joins us on the podcast today. Fergell is a professor in the physics and astronomy department of the College of Charleston. Dr. Fergell, welcome to the podcast. Sure, thank you. Uh, tell us about this Cosmos DG code you've developed. So Cosmos DG is sort of the latest iteration in a family of codes, variations of the Cosmos code. This is a fluid hydrodynamics code that's used for astrophysics and cosmology. In fact, the Cosmos, the root of the name, was from the fact that the code was originally designed to do cosmology, but has sort of morphed into doing a broad range of astrophysics. Cosmos has always kind of been a test platform for different code methods. So in other words, it's a sort of a, a test bed for developing new techniques for computational astrophysics. And the Cosmos DG iteration is specifically to test something called discontinuous Galerkin methods. So the idea of these codes, this is a family of codes called Eulerian, where you basically take your physical domain that you want to simulate and you basically break it up into a bunch of little tiny computational cells or zones, and you're basically solving the equations of fluid dynamics in each of those zones. And the idea is the accuracy of your solution comes both from how many of those zones you have, but also how accurate the method that you're using to solve the equations in each of those zones. And the advantage that discontinuous Galerkin has over previous methods we've used in Cosmos is that it allows us to use much higher order accuracy. In other words, we can solve the equations more accurately in each of those zones than we were previously able to. And so then that means for the same number of computational zones, and we were able to demonstrate that you can get many orders of magnitude more accurate solutions in that same number of computational zones. And so particularly in uh, scenarios where you need very accurate solutions, DG may be a way for us to get that with less computational expense than we would have had to use with previous methods. Dr. Fergell, you've taken advantage of some of the resources provided by Exceed, the uh, extreme science and engineering discovery environment. Could you tell us about some of the experiences that you've had using Exceed, and also maybe you could touch on this extended collaborative support services through some work done with Damon McDougall here at TAC? Sure. I mean, first off, the Exceed resources, I can't praise enough how meaningful that is. I mean, the science that I do wouldn't be possible without resources like that. That's a scale of resources that certainly a small institution like mine could never you know, support 
a resource of, of that scale. And so the fact that we have these national-level resources enables a huge amount of science that just wouldn't be done otherwise. Specific to the extended collaborative support, I kind of mentioned that the Cosmos family of codes have always kind of been a development platform for us to try new techniques. But one of the things we maybe haven't always had our eye on as we're trying to just develop new techniques, we haven't always necessarily put as much effort in making them efficient as maybe we could or, or should. You know, we're just trying to develop new ways of doing things and then kind of afterwards trying to make them more efficient. And that's been one of the things that Damon McDougall has really been helpful with is helping us make the code more efficient, helping us make it use the exceed resources more efficiently so that we can do even more science with the level of resources that were being provided. And so that's been really helpful. Um, he's helped us sort of profile the performance of the code and identify areas where we could focus on trying to improve the performance while keeping all of the capabilities that we've put in the code over the years. Joining us to talk more about Exceed Extended Collaborative Support Services is Damon McDougall, a research associate in the HPC Applications Group at the Texas Advanced Computing Center and also appointed jointly at the Institute for Computational Engineering and Sciences of the University of Texas at Austin. Damon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Could you give us your thoughts on helping scientists access the resources that Exceed provides through extended collaborative support services? So the ECSS program is an opportunity for folks that use Exceed resources to ask for help for various things. And one of those things is how to run effectively on Exceed systems, and Stampy2 is an Exceed system. Part of the role of you know HPCers and scientists that work here is to help folks that run on those systems to run effectively. And that's ever more important now, considering that Stampy2 has a new architecture, this many-core architecture. Um, so this is a, a chip that has lots of cores compared to some of the other chips you might have interacted with on other systems. And so more attention needs to be paid to the design of software to run effectively on those types of chips. So we promote a certain type of parallelism called hybrid parallelism, where you might mix uh, MPI, which is a, a way of passing messages between compute nodes, uh, and OpenMP, which is a way of communicating on a single compute node. So mixing those two parallel paradigms is something we encourage for these types of architectures. That's the kind of advice that we can help give and help scientists um, implement on Stampy2 through the ECSS program. Chris Fregel spoke more about some of the science the Cosmos code helped achieve. One of my interests has been on black hole accretion. That's certainly one of the areas where we've put a lot of effort. And so we have studied problems of how black hole accretion powers jets in accreting black hole systems and how the power of the jets is connected to what's happening in the accretion disk. One of the things I guess I'm most famous for is studying accretion disks where the disk is tilted 
So black holes can spin, and so they have their own axis of rotation. And then, of course, a disk has its own axis of rotation. And we were the first people to study cases where the axis of rotation of the disk is not aligned with the axis of rotation of the black hole. And the reason that's interesting, there's a funny property in general relativity that rotating bodies can exert a torque on other rotating bodies that aren't aligned with it. And what a torque basically does is it tends to cause something to want to rotate. And so the black hole kind of tries to align the disk with itself, but what ends up happening is the disk does something called precession. The example most people would know of precession is if you take a top and you spin it, the top is spinning, but it also kind of traces out this funny conical shape as it's spinning. That's precession. And so what we were able to show in simulations is that these tilted accretion disks would do that same funny kind of precession motion. They would kind of trace out a cone in space. And the really interesting thing about that is that over the last five years or so, um, observers, people who actually use telescopes to study black hole systems, uh, have seen evidence that the disks actually might be doing this sort of precession that we first showed in our simulations. Other things we've started studying, I mean, they're kind of black hole accretion, but what are called tidal disruption events. So this is when a cloud or a star passes close to a a black hole and the gravity of the black hole actually rips up the cloud or the star. So we did one of these in 2012. There were some observations of a cloud that was headed towards the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy, and there were predictions that the black hole might shred this cloud, disrupt this cloud, and there might be really interesting observations. So we did some simulations of that. It turned out, in the end, so the, the cloud passed by the black hole in 2014, and we didn't end up seeing what we predicted from the simulations, and it seems that what the observers thought was a cloud initially must have just been a funny star, and the difference is that the star, its own gravity was strong enough to hold the star together as it passed the black hole, whereas the cloud wouldn't have been able to hold itself together. But we've started doing more work related to stars and clouds being disrupted as they pass close to black holes. Some of the other areas, one of the things I have students working on right now that we're using exceed resources for is it's actually related to star formation, so this doesn't have much to do with black holes. And again, it's motivated by observations. There's a system called Minkowski's Object where it seems that a jet coming out of one galaxy, this jet is actually hitting a cloud of gas in space and has actually triggered stars to begin forming in that cloud. So there are a bunch of new stars that observers have seen that are forming in this cloud. And we actually showed with a set of simulations that this jet could have actually triggered these new stars to form inside this cloud. 
other things we've studied, we've studied evolution of small galaxies called dwarf galaxies and what happens to the material inside those dwarf galaxies when supernovas go off inside the dwarf galaxies. People may have heard that we're all made of stardust, the material in our body, uh, the carbon, the iron, the oxygen, the nitrogen, all of that material was actually formed in previous generations of stars. And one of the questions astronomers are concerned with is, how does the material get from a previous generation of stars back out into the galaxy to then be collected into a new star system like our solar system to form new planets and, and let life begin to develop? And so we were kind of studying that process of how does the material that's created in a supernova get redistributed in a galaxy after the supernova goes off. So those are just a few of the examples. The idea is, yes, black hole accretion is our sort of my main area, but it also illustrates that Cosmos++ Plus Plus really can be applied to, or Cosmos DG and previous generations have been applied to actually a pretty broad range of applications. I guess, you know, back to I said it was originally a cosmology code. The first application of the code that we ever did was actually studying way back at the very birth of the universe. Uh, uh, there was a phase transition when the matter in the universe went from just kind of a soup of quarks and hadrons into a sea of, of actual particles, protons and neutrons and things like that. And so that phase transition, we were able to study that with an early version of the Cosmos code as well. So we've really, I think, done an amazing range of astrophysics with this code. I imagine that you're, this must be an exciting time to be an astrophysicist with news Today, I guess, of the Nobel Prize for a gravitational wave discovery, um, James Webb teles Space Telescope. There's all kinds of exciting things happening right now. Yeah, I've absolutely. I mean, I've told my, you know, my family and friends and everybody else that, I mean, we're living in a golden age of astronomy. Historians are the ones who, you know, ultimately decide when a golden age starts and when a golden age ends. But I have no doubt that this will be looked back upon as a, as a golden age of astronomy, probably starting from somewhere around the invention of radio astronomy in the 1950s and 60s, then X-ray astronomy in the 1960s and 70s, up to, yes, you know, now we have not just electromagnetic astronomy, so not just light, but now gravitational waves. We have particle detector astronomy, so neutrino detectors doing astronomy. And yeah, but even the electromagnetic radiation, the light, yes, you know, Hubble for nearly you know, 25 years or however long it's been up now, and the coming of James Webb Space Telescope, some of the new big ground-based telescopes that are being built. Um, yeah, I mean, who knows how long it will last, but um, I think the, the pace of discovery and, and the interest in astronomy and astrophysics has been nearly unprecedented in human history.
I think probably the last age that would have been comparable would have been the 1600s when Galileo first started using a telescope to do astronomy and Kepler developed the laws of planetary motion and Newton came up with his laws of gravity. So, I mean, I think that was the the last time we had this much really exciting activity going on in astronomy. And almost behind the scenes, computers are also uh, working hard to keep up and help accelerate science, not only to help astronomers or uh, astrophysicists um, find things, but also to help them understand what they're seeing, like you mentioned with the star that was being, um, I guess, shredded by the black hole. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that goes hand in hand with this golden age of astronomy. It, it corresponds exactly with the development of computers. I mean, none of what we do in modern day astronomy could not be, I mean, it couldn't be done without computers. And with regard to Exceed, computational astrophysics was one of the first real big applications of big computing resources. I mean, the there were classified applications for weapon development programs, but as far as unclassified use of big computing resources, computational astrophysics was really one of the first ones as far back as the 1970s and has still remained, I think, the computational astrophysics community is still one of the fairly large users of Exceed. There are other fields that now are starting to gobble up computing resources, but yes, to your point, absolutely. Big computing has gone hand in hand with the developments of astrophysics, and yes, the simulations that I do are, I mean, they're they're twofold. They're to help us better understand the complex physics behind astrophysical phenomena, but they're also to help us interpret and predict observations that either have been or can be or will be made in astronomy. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a computational physicist by title, but the area of astrophysics is a particularly interesting application of computational physics these days. You've been listening to Chris Fregel of the College of Charleston and Damon McDougall of the Texas Advanced Computing Center and at the Institute for Computational Engineering and Sciences of UT Austin. For TAC, I'm Jorge Salazar. <laughs>